0: Well, here we are, Daniel with another vision. I guess he kind of feels like we do when the, um, <laughs> when the news comes on about what COVID is doing somewhere in the land and we think, oh, not again. And so here he is, it's the third year of Cyrus uh, and Cyrus is the king of Persia And we're reminded that Daniel's still effectively an outcast, he was called Belteshazzar. And the vision affects Daniel. It says in verse three, I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. He was distressed and disturbed and he has a vision of an interpreting angel, and this angel, for those of you who are note takers, is described like this in Ezekiel one twenty six to twenty eight, and in Revelation one fourteen to fifteen, uh, as someone like God, but as an angel in Ezekiel nine two. You ask me later if you want those. And the effect on the people. It's the same effect that seeing God has had on people throughout the scriptures and throughout generations and certainly mimics what happened with Paul. Everybody else heard the noise, but nobody else saw what Paul saw. And that's what happens here with Daniel. It says that they fled and hid themselves. Everybody else got up and ran, which is a reasonable reaction to seeing an angel of God, I would imagine. And part of the reason, and almost the first thing that the angel says to David is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be strong. <laughs> be strong. Be strong. And uh, Daniel is described by this angel as highly esteemed. That's an interesting word, thought well of. But in fact, it's the same word that in the 10th commandment has is described is translated coveted God covets Daniel he wants to keep Daniel for himself it's an interesting way of thinking about how God sees us he's paid so much for us he wants to keep us for himself Don't be afraid, the angel says, I've come to tell you what's going to happen. Now, I would have thought that that was the most terrifying statement you could make to anybody. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I don't know that I want to know what's going to happen. I don't know about you. The first thing that Gabriel has to do is explain why, when Daniel was heard as soon as he was heard, It took three weeks for him to get there and he describes being held back by the evil forces surrounding the persian empire what we see here is a description old testament description of the battle that exists deuteronomy suggests that when god gave each of the nations its place in the world It also gave them a guardian angel. I don't know whether your Nana taught you about your guardian angel. And what happens is that Satan has his way in these nations because he has demons, forces, all sorts of spirits who will work in the interests of the evil ones. But now, we in this New Testament time, when Jesus has lived and died and been victorious, we are the people who succeed where other people have failed. And because of the battle that Jesus has already won. Revelation tells us a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he wasn't strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The dragon was hurled down and then he heard a voice in heaven. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. There is no more place in heaven for him. But it's interesting because the passage says they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. Power is now confined to the earth. And like we'll see about one of the guys in the story to come, uh, he didn't take his frustrations well. And so we get to the beginning of chapter 11. And in the beginning of chapter 11, we read, I tell you the truth. Isn't that wonderful? That's how God works. He tells us the truth. He tells us the truth about us. He tells us the truth about him. So we begin with the truth. And the truth is that more kings are coming. It's a story of... of, uh, dirty deeds, some of them bloody and some of them simply, if you can call it simply, intrigue, corruption, mischief-making. And the first of these in verse three is Alexander. And Alexander wins great lands as we've said in seven and eight but his lands break up when he dies quite young and is divided between his generals. And then begin the battles for the land of Palestine, that land that God gave to his people and had to remove them from because of their sin. And we hear about the King of the North That's one of the generals, the Seleucids, as they're called. And in the south, the Ptolemies, which name you might have come across if you're a a, a Mummies fan or a whatever. Pardon me, because these are the Egyptians. And this tale, as we've read, is a tale of intrigue, of intermarriage for dynastic purposes, of betrayal... I mean, why else two men sit down at table and eat just to get up and try and kill one another? In verse 21, we meet the dreaded Antiochus Epiphanes, the man who probably did more damage to Israel than anyone before or since, because he was intent on destroying any. Worship of God. He was, in verse 24, described as a contemptible person. Held in contempt by God. He was, verse 21, he was succeeded by a contemptible person who had not been given the honour of royalty. He will seize it through intrigue. And throughout history, we've had those who waged battles and we've had those who waged intrigue. The Satan's methods really don't change very much. But, and in God's story, there's always a but. But at the appointed time, verse 29, he will invade the South again, but this time the outcome will be different than it was before. And you know, all these things that we know, that we read here, are recorded in secular history. They all happened. And these ships of the western coastline is the arrival of the Romans. he gets so angry with being thwarted by the Roman fleets that he goes back and wreaks vengeance on the people of God. And he does it two ways. He rewards the people of God who are willing to turn their backs on God and he kills the people who want to be true to God. It was punishable to circumcise your son. Punishable by death. It was punishable by death to have a copy of the Torah. It was punishable by death to try and get into the temple. And finally, when he'd done everything he could do to the people, he set up his idols in the temple of God. And so contaminated it that the people couldn't worship their God there. This is important because what happened in the time of the New Testament that we read is a direct result of these things that happened in the period between the two testaments. When the North and the South are fighting, when the intrigue's happening, When God's people are being punished just for being God's people. So what's going to happen to God's people? In verse 32, we read, With flattery he will corrupt those who violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. That's where resistance comes from not by being strong but by knowing god some will be wise they came to be known as the Hazardim. they will be what those who are wise will instruct many though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered when they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. And we know from time to time there have been people who said they would help God's people. Like when Ezra and Nehemiah were trying to rebuild the, the walls and the, build Jerusalem. We'll come, we'll help you. We want to help you build your temple. No, that's it. You've got no path, nothing to do with us. This is between us and our God. We'll build our temple. Some of the wise will stumble so that they can be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end for it will still come when? At the appointed time. So there will be trouble and there will be martyrdom. There was trouble and martyrdom in the church throughout its history. There was There was this uh, trouble and martyrdom for the people of the Old Testament. And some of these things not only happened historically, but they're repeated and repeated and repeated. When you're on a good thing, stick to it. Isn't that what they say? Well, Satan was on a good thing. Destroy God's people punish the ones who turn their back on, reward the ones who turn their back on God and punish the ones who don't. And so it still is. Some of the really big, shiny, got everything going for them looking churches are the ones who've actually forsaken the word of God. But in the immediate past here, in the story of Daniel, when God took the people back to Israel, it wasn't the glorious homecoming they envisaged. They didn't get to throw out their oppressors. They didn't get to have the wonder of the temple again. They didn't have, get to have everything that they'd always had, you know. Like we keep saying, "When will it be good when we get back to normal?" And we keep saying about COVID, "When will it be good when we get back to normal?" Ain't going to be a normal, and there wasn't for the people of Israel either. They got back to Israel and they were still aliens in their own country. But God's story wasn't finished. God had another play. Somebody else to martyr. Somebody else to take the curses that in Old Testament times had been laid on Jesus, been laid on the people. They were now laid on Jesus. There were people, as these verses tell us, who were wise and instructed others and stayed with God. That remnant, God always keeps a remnant. And we know about them because when Jesus is taken to the temple as a baby, we meet a couple of them. We meet Simeon, whose song used to be part of our um, our morning prayer services. Do you remember in Luke two? And he says, Sovereign Lord, says Simeon, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. He'd been told he wouldn't die till he saw the Lord's Messiah. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. And there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, this is Mary and Joseph with the baby Jesus, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Here, folks, she said, is hope. Are we fearful about the future? Are we fearful about things we can't control? Do we wake in the night with visions of things that are frightening? There's a guy called Viktor Frankl. Who I disagree with a fair bit, but he's an existentialist. And he says everything can be taken from a person but one thing the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude to any given set of circumstances. I mightn't be able to overpower it, but I can choose my attitude to it. So, what is your attitude to the future? What is your attitude to what God has shown us of Himself here? Do we, and do you, expect God to bring about what he says he will? To bring about ju- judgment and to bring about justice? And are we, like some of these old people of the Old Testament, training ourselves to resist firmly? And are we able to instruct others? Though that may mean we face persecution ridicule, or death. God's people will be those who are saved by faith, faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and who submit to his lordship. These are the ones who will survive the battles to come. Nothing can interrupt the purposes of God. We've seen evidence of his sovereignty all through the story of Daniel, and we need to learn to trust him. If we are to survive, we need grown-up pictures in our heads of God, his power, the fact that he covets us, wants us for himself. There's an interesting book I want to recommend to you. I happen to have two copies of it, one I bought when I was 24 and one I bought much later. Um, And it's called Your God is Too Small. It's written by a man called J.B. Phillips, And Philip's contention is that many of us walk around with a picture in our heads of God as we created him in our heads when we were in kindergarten, when we were at Sunday school. This is the picture we carry around. But the God that we need to face the problems of adulthood, we need to understand is bigger, is more powerful, is sovereign, That Jesus is Lord. Nobody but nobody takes his place. Nobody but nobody tells him what to do. If you don't have that picture, apart from reading this one, I've got a couple of copies of this if you'd like to borrow one. So what have we learned about God? We've learned that he's sovereign. That he covets his people but he covets them to put him in the right place in their lives. That makes them strong against all the corruption and all the battles that they will face. And that, for me, is a great place to be.